0: Let's pray as we stand. Loving Lord, thank you for all of the truths that we saw in your word last week. Thank you that you know us and yet you still love us despite what you see. And thank you that you are with us no matter how far we have run, no matter what darkness is in our life. Father, we can never escape you. You are always with us. And so Father, as we come to the second half of this wonderful psalm now, would you help us To see what it is saying. Father, would you help the Bible to shape how we see the world rather than the world to shape how we read this passage? Would you do so by your spirit? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. What is worth more, art or life? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting? or the protection of our planet and people. These were the words of Phoebe, a Just Stop Oil activist who helped to splatter cans of tomato soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers at London's National Gallery as part of one of the Just Stop Oil's eco-vandalism protests. And we could spend all morning debating Just Stop Oil's methods, but Phoebe raises an interesting question, what is worth more, art or life? The calculated economist might answer, well, well it depends on the arts. Uh, it depends on the life. Uh, if the average human life is worth around 8 million pounds, uh, and Van Gogh's sunflower is, wor- is worth an estimated 80 million pounds, well, you do the maths but is all human life worth the same, someone might respond. Sure, the average human life might be worth 8 million pounds, but Moises Caicedo was bought for 115 million pounds because he can kick a ball reasonably well. Uh, Elon Musk's net worth is an estimated $240 billion. Perhaps more pessimistically, someone might say, well, what about someone who is below average? Someone who's past their prime. Are they worth less than £8 million? Maybe it's not so straightforward. To get a different perspective, I messaged my brother-in-law, who is a firefighter in Leicester, and I asked him, say there's a fire at my house. You guys arrive knowing I'm stuck in need of rescue, but you also know there's a very valuable piece of art in my home. Is there any circumstance where you don't save me? Now, I wasn't expecting to get an answer, as I didn't expect this to be covered in the handbook, but apparently firefighters are always taught to prioritize safety of self, safety of people, and then safety of property. According to the Fire Brigade, no matter what the value of the piece of art, human life is always more precious. But why? Why is life so valuable, so precious? Why? Why in particular does human life carry so much value? It might seem like a question with an obvious answer, but as Western society gradually untethers itself from its Christian roots, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult to justify that you and I have intrinsic, inherent value. Our value is increasingly more likely to be measured by our value to society, what we contribute or the self-worth that we might attribute to ourselves. The problem with both of those things is that they are unstable metrics. Our our contribution to society and our self-worth, they fluctuate, depending on our personality, our skills, our age, our health, countless other things. These ways of measuring our worth don't give us a fixed, stable, inherent worth. And sure, we might appeal to our human rights, enshrined in law, but, but why are we worthy of such rights? Well, last week we saw that the Lord knows us and he is with us. And just like last week, the second half of our psalm will keep echoing back to that great creation story of Genesis 1-3. to And it's my hope that as we spend a bit more time in the second half of Psalm 139 this morning we will see that as Christians, we have a much firmer foundation to stand on for why humans are intrinsically valuable. A much better answer to the question, what is worth more, art or life? Because our psalm will show us human life is art. Like of all of creation, we are created by the greatest of artists, the Lord God. And you and I occupy the privileged position of being God's masterpieces, Because we are those made in his image. And so if you've come to church wrestling with the question, what am I worth this morning? Or you can't help but feel inherently less valuable as you compare yourself to those sat in the auditorium. Or or you feel like you're past your prime, less valuable than you once were. My hope is that these verses will show us that you are worth more than you could ever dream. Not because you have to muster it up within yourself, not because of what you can contribute to society or because of your religious performance this past week, but because you are made in the image of God. Your creator has instilled in you an inherent fixed value that does not fluctuate or depreciate. Two points this morning. Point one, the God who made me. Uh, The Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries saw the tradition from goods that were created by hand to goods that were created en masse by machines. Uh, This meant more goods could be produced more quickly and more consistently, and yet today there's actually quite a great appeal about a handmade gift. Uh, If it's a choice between machine-sliced bread or handmade artisan bread, uh, a choice between a mass-produced piece of jewellery that lots of people will have or a handmade one-off piece from Etsy, uh, then the handmade item is, is often the more appealing option and the more expensive uh, because it conveys that more thought and care has been poured into it. Look with me at verse 13 to 16 where, you, where we see that you and I carry value, value because we have been intimately made by God. Verse 13 to 16. In describing how we've been made, these verses show the value that each human life carries. God has created us inside and out. Our inmost being, verse 13, and our frame, verse 15. We have been knit together, woven together, stamped with God's image. Now, from what I've observed, admittedly at a distance, knitting is a labour of love takes time attention and care if I want my uh, granny-in-law's knitted jumper I have to let her know well in advance of Christmas but as King David writes he writes that we have been knit together in our mother's womb woven together which communicates that we have been made carefully personally and so no matter what you might think about yourself this morning You are unique. You are God's precious handiwork. You carry a value that is determined by him. Sam Albury writes in his brilliant book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, that we human beings are not the product of a factory or the process of copy and paste. Our distinctive physical individuality is intended. We've been made by the ultimate artisan. Our God has produced billions of human bodies, but we are not mass-produced. We've each been handcrafted with infinite care. Each of us has been intimately created with love and care by the Almighty, and so every person that you come into contact with this week is valuable, worthy of dignity and respect, because they carry with them God's image. And these verses show us that that is a dignity that extends to those in the womb. If David can write, you knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Your eyes saw my unformed body. Then yes, as Christians, we should be those who make a clear stand against abortion. Who fight for the rights of those who cannot fight for their own. But we should also be those who provide love, support and care to women, equally made in God's image, who feel like abortion is the best of a series of bad options that they could turn to. Now, this isn't the only area where these verses carry profound implications. Uh, they have much to speak into about how we as Christians think about the trans movements, a biblical view of disability, uh, how we are to think about euthanasia, many topics that we just don't have time to go into this morning. But areas that I would encourage you to talk to and speak to a trusted Christian friend about, or to take some time to speak with one of the staff here after the service, because in a culture that is increasingly confused in these areas, the gospel has so much to say about our bodies, providing not only clarity, but also comfort for us to hold on to and to hold out. We carry value because God has been involved in forming us personally, but we also see in these verses, we carry value because the Lord has created us purposefully. Anything not created doesn't, uh, with purpose carries little value. Uh, but these verses show that we have been created by God with purpose and for a purpose. Look with me at verse 16 again. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God saw your unformed body and he chose to form you. He planned to bring you into this world before one of your days had come to be. And so no matter what you might have been told in the past, and no matter how you might feel, you are not an unwanted accident or an unplanned mistake. You are intentional. You carry value because God chose to form you and bring you into this world, and He did so for a purpose. At the Westminster Catechism is a collection of several questions and answers that summarize big theological truths written by the Puritans in 1647. And it begins by asking this question. A question, what is the chief end of man? Or to put it another way, what is man's purpose? What am I here for? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Verse 16, all the days ordained for you were written in his book before one of them came to be. Days that God has given for each of us so that we might use the unique personality, gifts, and characteristics that He has given us to bring Him glory, and so that we might spend our days enjoying Him now and forever. And the Bible is clear that we've been made to glorify and enjoy God now in this life and in the new creation, new creation to come as embodied beings, physical beings. Uh, These verses and the Bible as a whole have a very high view of the body. It is not something that can be disposed of. It is not something to be escaped. It is not to be viewed as unspiritual or ungodly. The body has purpose and value. C.S. Lewis writes this, Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good's that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven and is going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty and our energy. To the Muslim, the fact that God took on flesh is irreverent, degrading even, unimaginable. But to the Christian, the fact that Jesus took on flesh, the fact that he has been resurrected with a body clothed in power, it dignifies our bodies. It highlights the value, the purpose that the physical bodies we have been given to steward and put to work have so that we might both glorify and enjoy him with them. And so knowing that he has been created by God personally and purposefully, David famously writes in verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. This is David's assessment. He is valuable because he has been made fearfully and wonderfully by his God's who God has made him to be, is something to give God praise for. I fearfully and wonderfully here, seem to just convey a sense of awe, uh, the kind of awe and wonder that a newborn baby might bring to their parents as they hold them in their hands for the first time. Or, or that I might feel as I step back and marvel having successfully put, put together a piece of Ikea furniture. Uh, and these words are not just true of David. If you're a human being this morning, which I imagine you are, these words are also true of you. You are a wonderful, valuable, precious work of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are worth praising God for this morning. But maybe hearing that makes you think, sure, easy. Easy for King David to say, he was a mighty king won many victories. He was wealthy beyond my imagination. According to 1 Samuel 16, 12, he was glowing with health, had a fine appearance, handsome features. Of course someone in his position might be able to say he's fearfully and wonderfully made. But I hear those words and they just ring hollow. There's never been anything in me that seems to inspire awe in anyone. If that's you, then notice that David doesn't mention any of his specific characteristics or accomplishments. His value doesn't come from anything that he has done. Instead, he's able to say these words because he knows how great the one who has formed him is. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. David's sense of value and worth, it doesn't come from looking within. It doesn't come from looking around. Instead, David is able to say that he is fearfully and wonderfully made because he looks up. He knows the one who has made him, and he knows how great the one who has made him is. And so David can say he is fearfully and wonderfully made because he bears the image of that incredible and awesome God. And so whether your tendency is, More to focus on the brokenness of your body than its beauty. Or if you feel more prone towards pride and looking down on others, then instead of looking around or within, look up to what God has to say of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Tim Keller writes this, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself, nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. David concludes this section of the psalm, full of praise, in verse 17 and 18, writing, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they were an outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Scientists estimate there are 7.5 sextillion grains of sand on the Earth. Now, if you ask me, that sounds like a made-up number. Uh, But apparently, it's 75 with 17 zeros after it. Uh, But that is just an average calculation based on volume, probability. Uh, No one ever has or will ever be able to sit down and count the amount of grains of sand in the world. I, I mean, just imagine... If you were to take a spoon and you spent your time trying to count the amount of grains of sand on that spoon, it would take you forever. And yet David says that God's thoughts outnumber even the grains of sand. And whereas sand is of little value, you can get a bag of builder's sand for three pounds from B&Q, David says that God's thoughts, they are precious to him, each one. David's reflection On these verses, on God's intimate creative power is one of awe that leads him to praise. If as a creature that bears God's image, uh, we have been given such a vast and inherent worth because we've been made personally, purposefully and praisefully, how much greater and more precious and more holy must the everlasting creator be? If the art is precious, how much more precious the artist. And if it is a terrible crime to mar the image of a human made in God's image. How much more offensive to malign the God whose image we bear. That leads us to our second point. The God whose justice unsettles me. We've heard our psalm read fully both this week and last. Uh, And I imagine that for many of us, verse 19 to 22 may have raised a bit of discomfort. We'd happily post verse 14 on social media, uh, buy an artistic print of verse 1 to 6 to hang on our wall, crochet verse 11 and 12 onto a pillow, or have verse 23 and 24 as a fridge magnet. Uh, But you don't see many people do the same with verse 19 to 22, do you? only you God would slay the wicked maybe as those verses have been read you've you've been surprised at the sharp shift in tone why are these verses here how do they fit the flow of this psalm why why such violent verses amongst such beautiful truths and though these verses might unsettle us at first I hope we'll see they fit the flow of the psalm just right Look down with me at them again. Verse 19 to 22. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. I was talking with a friend a couple of weeks back whose wife is having a really tough time at work. Uh, Her boss has created a work environment where there is constant conflict and where each day that she goes in, she's just feeling unsettled and worried about what her boss is going to say or do. And it's causing her and everyone else in the office great anxiety. Uh, My friend had seen that effect on his wife. He was really struggling. And actually, he was really struggling because the riding emotion that he felt was one of bitter anger towards this man. He was telling me how he was struggling to know how to best support his wife, should he encourage her to leave the job or stay, that his thoughts were constantly filled with just wanting to go into the office and shout at this man, or actually to do something worse. Suggested that maybe wasn't the best course of action for all parties involved. But, but we did then spend a bit of time unpicking what he was feeling. And some of it, he admitted, it was sinful and wrong. It, he wanted to hurt this man to take revenge. But, but some of it was from a good place. He wanted to protect his wife, see her flourish. He wanted others in the office not to suffer the same pain and injustice that this man had caused. When those that we love are threatened, or, or when those that we love suffer injustice, we rightly want to see them defended. Are those in the wrong brought to justice? And this seems to be what David is saying in these verses. Verse 19, if only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. David wants God to bring justice upon those who are wicked, upon those who are bloodthirsty. If we've seen each human being is a piece of art made in the image of God who carries intrinsic, inherent value, then to mar that image, to snuff that image out completely, that is a grave crime that demands justice. And that's what David prays to the Lord for. And and as we read the news or if you've been in a similar position to my friend and his wife, if you've suffered injustice yourself, I think we understand this desire, don't we? But David continues, because actually if the marring of those made in God's image through violence, abuse, or murder is such a horrendous thing to do, how much worse to act violently towards the name of the one whose image we are created in? If it is a crime to attack the art, how much more of a crime to attack the artist? Which is what David moves to address in verse 20 to 22. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. And so let me ask you, when you hear people slander the Lord's name? When you see people live with no respect or regard for him, does that make you uncomfortable? When people take the Lord's name in vain, write slanderous posts on social media, does it affect you? When you see people in such open rebellion against the God who made them, is your heart filled with pain? Do you pray or do you just walk on by without a care? If my friend felt nothing as he saw his wife hurt or harmed, we'd maybe ask if he truly loved his wife. And of course, God doesn't need us to defend him. But if we feel nothing, when we see rebellion and hatred leveled against him, there may need to be a need to examine our own hearts to see if we truly love the Lord. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, you cannot love what God loves without hating what God hates. But here's the thing, there's plenty of people who profess to follow Christ, who hate what they see out there and are very vocal about it, but who then turn a blind eye to the rebellion against God that takes place within their own heart. Self-righteousness is something that Jesus strongly condemns in the Pharisees, and it is an Ugly danger that each of us is going to be prone to in different ways. But as followers of Christ, we are called to hate sin wherever we find it. Because it distorts, it destroys God's good creation and those made in his image. And so that perhaps means we need to hate sin, especially when we find it in our own hearts. So yes, we are called to call the world to repentance from rebellion against God. But if we have truly understood the gospel, we can't do so from a high horse. Look at what David writes in verse 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As those who know what it is to have been an enemy of God, we cannot call people to repent and believe in Jesus from our high horse. We can only humbly call them to join us at the foot of the Lamb in repentance and faith, so that they too might be reconciled through God's great restoration project. Because where we began last week, ever since the fall of Genesis 3, God has been engaged in a great restoration project for all mankind. Because ours is a God who values life and art. Ever since we turned from him and twisted his good image that he instilled in us toward our own evil purposes, he has been out to restore us. So that instead of needing to hide in fear or shame, We can enjoy life and enjoy life to the full once again. This is why Jesus came. The great artist took on flesh and entered into his creation so that he might restore you and me beautiful and broken and sinful pieces of art in need of restoration. The artist laid down his life at the cross spilling his blood on the canvas of his creation so that all who repent and trust in him might be washed clean from any sin, restored to relationship with their creator. His image was marred beyond recognition at the cross so that by faith, ours might be restored. His death means that for all who pray, those final words of our psalm, verse 23 and 24 they can do so without fear or shame. Knowing that as God searches, tests and knows us, as he knows our anxious thoughts and our offensive ones, he sees all of that if we are trusting in Jesus through the lamb that was slain, the great restoration artist, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who brings life and life to the full. Why don't we close with a word of prayer? Father, thank you that you are our great creator. You are the God who made us your creatures. And yet even when we turned from you, even when we ran our own way, decided to do what we wanted to do rather than trusting in you, rather than worshipping you for all that you have done, your wonderful works, thank you that you sent Jesus to restore us, to save us that all who turn from their former way of living and trust in you might be restored to the image that you gave to us, that perfect image that we are going to see when you come again. We long for that day, Father. Help us to trust in the lamb that was slain now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.